Minus 15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfume. Hello, Utah Street. Five, four, three, two, one. From inside the warehouse at Oriole Park at Camden Yards, it is the Masson All Access Podcast. Paul Mancano, Brendan Mortensen here with you as always. And Brendan, how you doing on this fine Monday morning? Oh, wonderful. Good. I saw Spider-Man last weekend. I will not spoil it for anybody. Please do not. No, I think everybody would turn off the podcast immediately. Yeah. And be rightfully angry. I think a lot of people have already seen it. So I think, uh, you know, we're in good company and those who haven't seen it probably don't care quite enough, but there, I think there is a small portion of people that haven't seen it and also don't want to have the movie spoiled for them. Yes. I couldn't be, I could be a little bit better if the Ravens had, uh, had pulled off. I know Grayson Rodriguez probably could be, be doing a little bit better if after the Ravens fall, unfortunately their third straight loss in, by a combined four points, I think. Yeah. And, of course, for the third straight week, Brendan, the this isn't a Ravens podcast, but I'm going to go on a Ravens tangent here. It is now. Because the debate has been raging now, both publicly and locally, about John Harbaugh's decision-making. And I got to say, Brendan, you can't date the analytics. You got to marry them. Everybody is mad about analytics all the time, is what I have well, gathered from Twitter.com. This is what makes it important for us because we sit here debating analytics quite often yeah but when it comes to baseball and now the analytics discussion we realize has its tendrils have reached into football and people like to debate things well i think the interesting thing with that ravens game yesterday too especially when you look at it from the analytics side of things wasn't that they went for two at the end of the game i think there should be more discussion about the fact that they should have gone for two yes with like five minutes left they should have gone for two at that point because that's what they did, what, a few weeks ago right. at this point, which he still got criticized for when they didn't get it. But they should have gone for two at like the five-minute remaining mark instead of having to get it at the very end of the game. Right, because if you go for it there, you can make it so that you can win. the. If you get another touchdown and kick the extra point, you can win the game with just an extra point. Yes. And if you don't get it, then you're just down eight, so then you just need a two-point conversion to right. tie. Right. Odds are chances. Yeah. And it's a greater than 50% chance that you're going to get a two point conversion. And I know people were saying, well, that's with Lamar Jackson and they're not necessarily Tyler Huntley. But look, if if you're going for it the first time, you have to be willing to do it again, regardless of the math still makes sense. Like if you went for it the first time and didn't get it, you can't say, well, we didn't get it. We're results based. You have to be process based, not results based. If the process tells you that you should go for it once, then you should go for it twice. Yeah. It doesn't change simply because you didn't get it the first time. And if Tyler Huntley completes that pass and the Ravens win the game, nobody has the discussion. They praise the fact that they went for it and played to win the game. Right. And the process tells you odds are better than 50% that if you go for two, you're going to get it. The problem, right. of course, I get it, is with the play call. That that's the bigger issue because well, that was not an excellent play call. I don't think the play call was all that bad. I mean, if you if you rewatch the play, like Hollywood was open in the back of the end zone. He was, but and it, maybe Lamar makes that play. And, and Darnell Savage also made a great play on the ball. Yes, but it, it's a good play. They were just blanketing Mark Andrews because they yeah. knew that Huntley's favorite target is Mark Andrews. So 
maybe Lamar stops and makes that throw to Hollywood, but Huntley yeah. doesn't. All, all difficult decisions. Anyway, stop bullying analytics on Twitter.com. And John Harbaugh, because he's making... And John the, Harbaugh, because he is correct. He's making the right decisions. Yeah. All right. Um, Brendan, we are going to be talking for the majority of this podcast about Trey Mancini, because we've been teasing it for weeks. But essentially, the Orioles have an impending decision to make with Trey Mancini. Of course, they're in a lockout right now, so they can't make any decisions for the foreseeable future. But once this lockout ends and the transaction freeze ends, they have to make decisions for 2022 and beyond. So we'll get into that in just a little bit. But first, Brendan, the Orioles made a couple additions, not to their 40-man roster because they can't do that right now. They can't sign players to their 40-man roster and they can't sign any players who ended the 2021 season on any 40-man roster around baseball. So that eliminates a lot of players that you may think will sign minor league deals, but you literally just can't sign them. So what the Orioles went and did is they signed two guys who were not on 40-man rosters to end the 2021 season, and they signed them to minor league deals. Yeah, and they get two catchers out of these two minor league deals, the first one being Jacob Nottingham and the other being Anthony Bemboom. Nottingham is 26 years old, going to be 27 by the time the season rolls around. Again, he was not on a 40-man roster. He is not yet on the Orioles 40-man roster. We'll see if he breaks camp with the team. It seems like the Orioles are kind of going the route of let's have a catcher competition in the offseason and then may the best catcher make the 40-man roster and get to back up Adley Rutschman in a few months. But Nottingham is a career 698 OPS. He doesn't have a great average, but he's still on the younger side. He has potential, as you see his stats there in 53 career games. Just a 184 hitter. He's not a catcher that's going to make a big impact, but because he's still a little bit younger, still has a little bit of potential there, he could at least be a serviceable backup. I think of the two catchers, Nottingham is probably more likely to make the roster and stick around for the year, if I had to guess. Yeah, there's much more theoretical upside with Jacob Nottingham simply because his age. I mean, to put that in perspective, you know, Pedro Severino is... 27. I think he's going to be 28 next year. So he's a year older, a little bit more established. Orioles are hoping, I think, to turn Nottingham into somewhat of a serviceable backup yeah. for this year that has a little bit more upside. Ben Boom, to me, turns 32 in January, just doesn't have that kind of upside. And to me, this seems more like a, you know, kicking the tires on a guy just to see if you can increase the competition. I mean, remember, they need camp bodies. When you have no players on the 40-man roster, you're just not going to have many catchers to literally catch the pitchers in the bullpens in Sarasota in spring. So I wouldn't read too much into the Ben Boom signing. I know a lot of fans got a little worried that this might be the Orioles' big moves at catcher, but there's no saying that they don't go out and sign a big league catcher, a more established catcher once this transaction freeze ends. Yeah, like you said, Ben Boom, 32 years old. He's a career 178 hitter. I'm pretty sure the thinking there is that it's just an older veteran catcher who has been around the major leagues for a few years and at worst he's going to provide some leadership and mentorship to some of the younger catchers that are coming up throughout the minor leagues because he's had experience at the major league level working with other catchers working with pitchers he's also decent defensively he's thrown out 40 percent of potential base stealers at the major league level so he would be an okay defensive 
catcher. He doesn't provide much upside offensively, if any upside offensively. So again, I think it's just they're going to work out the competition and whoever breaks camp is probably going to be the backup for the year. Right. I mean, at worst, he just is not good enough and just doesn't make the team. Right. You know, he he could just be a, a camp body. Yeah, there's so, no risk in this so kind of signing. Yeah, but of course, with Nottingham, there's a connection to Mike Elias going to hit back to his Houston days uh, because that has often been the case. As there are with most signings, it seems like. Yeah. yeah, he was a 2013 sixth round pick by Houston. He was once a top 100 prospect very briefly. He was in the top 100. According to Baseball uh, Prospectus, he was number 66 back before the 2013 season. He was actually part of the Scott Casimir trade uh, when he was traded to Oakland. Then he was traded to Milwaukee in a deal for Chris Davis. Chris Davis with a K, not with a C. Uh, And he was placed on waivers in May 2021 and picked up by Seattle, who then released him him in September. So despite the fact that he is young, Jacob Nottingham has been around with several different big league teams. Yeah, and that theoretical potential is still there. It has not showed up at the major league level quite yet. But I don't think the Orioles are done at catcher. I would be very surprised if they were. I would assume, and it would be my guess, that they might make one lower-end major league signing at the position to have somebody who's a little more solid at the very least, I think they make at least one more minor league signing and yeah. just have it be a full-blown minor league signing competition, which would certainly be interesting. I think it would be smart to have just a baseline, even if it's a low-end major league signing, just a baseline veteran presence that you know can be somewhat productive at the major league level rather than just the minor league signings. But either way, it's it seems like it's going to be a pretty wide-open competition. We've talked about it before, but... Adley Rutschman is the shadow hanging over the catching position for now. And we know that the rules for service time could change. But at the time being, with the rules being what they are, we're going to assume that Adley is going to debut within the first couple months of the season, but will most likely not break camp with the team. Probably spend a month or two down in AAA, which means the Orioles can't really afford to totally skimp on this position because... Not only do you have to get through the first couple months of the season without Adley Rutschman, but there's no guarantee Adley Rutschman, like any other player, I mean, he's been healthy throughout his minor league career, could get hurt. So if Adley Rutschman goes down at any point in the season, you're going to be stuck with the guys that you have on your roster. So to me, they, the Orioles can't really afford to totally go with a hodgepodge of minor league signings like a Nottingham and a Bemboom and another scrap heap guy it makes sense to solidify the position somewhat while you wait for Adley to come up and then as an insurance policy for Adley. Yeah, as good as Adley Rutschman is, you are really banking on a guy who has yet to make his debut in the major leagues, which is not to say that Adley Rutschman probably won't come up and be the best catcher on the Orioles roster. But regardless, most teams around Major League Baseball have two catchers that you can go to at any point in time because... A lot of times a catcher needs a day off. You put him at DEH. It's just a position that is frequently moved around. So you still need somebody who is going to be competent behind Adley Rutschman. Yeah. Regardless of of whether or not he comes up and starts right away. And you could make the case the Orioles especially need a competent catcher, especially defensively because of the number of young pitchers that they're going to be having on the mound this year between... 
you know, a Zach Lowther, Alexander Wells, Mike Bauman, Kevin Smith, Kyle Bradish, all those guys could use a veteran presence behind the plate. And Adley Rutschman is advanced for his age and level of experience in that realm. But having, when he gets a day off, day game after a night game, a Sunday, or if he gets hurt, you want to have somebody who knows how to calm a pitcher down, how to call a good game, how to work with a young pitcher and is dedicated to spending extra time uh, on the field, on the practice field, in the bullpen, working with these guys. Yeah, and we did our kind of March Madness-style bracket for the free agents. I think as we've gone throughout the offseason, I still think somebody like Austin Romine would make a ton of sense, just a career backup who has worked with a lot of different pitchers throughout the majors. I think he makes a lot of sense, especially if you are going with the catcher competition approach. I know the guy who won our catcher bracket was Robinson Chirinos. I think he still makes sense as well. He's still, He's out, still there. out there. So I don't think the Orioles are done. Yeah, no, not by any stretch. Kurt Suzuki, uh, Wilson Ramos, Jeff Mathis. Uh, there are a lot of guys that could fit that bill. All right, Brendan, should we talk about Trey Mancini? Oh, yes, I think we should. It's a Weird discussion, but yeah. It's a difficult conversation to have because for the last couple of years, the talk around Trey Mancini has rightfully so been about his recovery from stage three colon cancer, getting back on the field, showing that he could be healthy for an entire season, and lifting up a lot of people around him. Anybody who followed Trey Mancini's story, both at a local level and at a national level, found inspiration in... Trey's story, and it has been an an awesome story to follow, but there's always a business side of baseball, and there's always a next chapter when it comes to a recovery, and there there have to be, these questions have to be answered, Brendan, so we have to look long-term as to, the Orioles have to make a decision for themselves as to what is the best way to go forward with a player, not just who they are as a person, but who they are as a player. Does this player fit their long-term plans monetarily, position-wise, and is he a guy that we want to invest a significant amount of money and time into? Yeah, it's different from somebody like, we've talked about Anthony Santander a lot on this podcast because it's a crowded outfield. You're not really sure what we're going to do with him. That is pretty much purely a baseball discussion. As much as we love Anthony Santander, That's a baseball discussion, whereas with Trey Mancini, a lot of what we end up talking about is an emotional conversation and your attachment to Trey Mancini, given what he has gone through and what he means to this team and to the city of Baltimore as a whole. So you can't, you really can't just talk about his production on the field and what you're going to do with him there because the emotion almost has to play into that conversation a little bit in terms of what other kind of value he's giving you. And you and I have both talked on this podcast at length about how much we enjoy talking to Trey Mancini, covering Trey Mancini. We think he's a, a solid guy. We're both, uh, you know, friendly with his now fiance, Sarah Perlman, of course. Uh, congratulations yep. again. Uh, so, you know, we have a stake in this game. However, we do have to cover him and talk yep. about the him as a player and whether he fits the Orioles' plans long-term as well. So... To me, Brendan, you got Trey Mancini, who is entering the final year under contract with the Orioles. He's 29 years old. He turns 30 in March. His career stats 
from 2016, the time he debuted, until 2021. Now, of course, remember, he missed the shortened 2020 season. If you're watching live on Facebook and uh, YouTube, and if you're not, I suggest you do, but you can see his stats here. 609 career games, 271 average, just over 100 career homers, 300 and nine career RBIs in an OPS just over 800. All solid numbers. However, he is a first baseman. We've passed the point at which he can play a serviceable corner outfield if that time period ever existed. So he is relegated to either first base or designated hitter. He is one of the oldest players on the roster at this time period, and he's due to make $7.1 million in arbitration this year. Now, the Orioles have tendered him a contract, so they have passed the point at which they could non-tender him. They want him around going forward, but that leaves the door open for three options. There are three doors through which the Orioles could walk. One, extend him as soon as the uh, transaction freeze ends and the lockout ends. Two, trade him before the 2022 season begins. Or three, pay him in arbitration, let him go into his walk year with all three options still on the table. Yeah. I think there is a case to be made for all three of those options. And there are a few a few things you need to point out when you are evaluating Trey Mancini and what the Orioles should do with him. The first you mentioned is the position difficulty. He is not serviceable in one of the quarter outfields, which gave him a, a little bit more value when you look at like the 2019 season. In 2019, he was fantastic. Probably should have been an all-star. He hit 291. He had an 899 OPS with 35 homers. That's a fantastic season that you want in the middle of your lineup. The 2021 season was not as good for a lot of different reasons. He got off to a slow start, which is more than understandable. And I think you and I would agree that he exceeded expectations Absolutely. in terms of what we thought he was going to be able to do during the 2021 season, especially when you look at the amount of games that he played. That alone is incredible. And he had a great 2021 season given the circumstances. However, you also have to look at the fact that it was not as good as his 2019 season, again, for obvious reasons. And he played 77 games at first and 68 games as the DH, which is a position combination that is now going to be dominated mostly by Ryan Mountcastle. Yeah. Trey Mancini is more than likely not going to be your starting first baseman going forward because you want to leave that position for Mountcastle. You want to give him enough opportunities to improve defensively there. So really the only option with Trey Mancini to get him into the lineup is you're taking up both of those spots with Mountcastle and Mancini. One of them is going to be your first baseman. One of them is going to be your DH. And that really limits what you can do with your lineup. It does. And with a team that is going to have a ton of young players debuting over the next two years, when you talk about guys like Ryan McKenna, who's already on the roster, of course, Kyle Stowers, potentially Yusniel Diaz, then you have an influx of infielders like a Gunnar Henderson and a Jordan Westberg and a Terran Vavra and a Joey Ortiz and all these guys who have had good 2020s or 2021s in the minor league levels, 
they're going to be coming up and it's going to be difficult oftentimes, I think for Brandon Hyde to fit these guys into a roster, which makes the DH position important to have open. And if you sign Trey Mancini, you're essentially locking yourself into a DH. Whether he plays first base most games or he DHs, you're essentially having to lock yourself into a DH because you have Mountcastle, who is of the same ilk, who cannot play in the corner outfield. He has to play first. He and Mancini are essentially negative one defensive run saved they had in 2021. Each of them did at first base. So they are basically the same defensively. Offensively, they have around the same production level. Mountcastle had a more productive season at the plate. Part of that could be due, as you said, to Trey Mancini recovering. They're around the same offensive player at this point. Maybe Mountcastle has a slightly higher ceiling because of his age and prospect status. So you're locking yourself into both of those positions, which can be difficult for a rebuilding team to do when you're going to need as many lineup spots as possible to fill with prospects. And I think it's also important to point out that the solution there, when we're talking about you know having to play Trey Mancini at DH, having to play him at first base, the solution is not as simple as, well, we'll just pay him to be the backup because Trey Mancini is good enough to go somewhere else in free agency and have a starting job somewhere. Right. Somewhere around Major League Baseball, he will be a first baseman every day or at the very least would be a DH. There are plenty of places that he could do that. And as much as Trey Mancini has given to this team in the city of Baltimore, he is also going to want to continue to get playing time. So the Orioles can't just say, well, we'll give him less money and he'll be a great backup to Ryan Mountcastle at first and we'll get him a DH spot when we can. No, he's going to want to play baseball consistently and he will have opportunities to do so elsewhere if Baltimore does not present him with that opportunity. Yeah, it takes two to tango and he's going to be 30 years old. He's going to want to, this is the first time in theory, if the Orioles don't extend him, he's going to be entering free agency When players hit free agency for the first time, rightfully so, they want to get as much money as they can. I mean, that's that's how anybody would act under these circumstances. So he's going to want to play, and it's not a role where he's going to sign a guy, you know, he's not a 38-year-old who's going to sign on with the Orioles and say, I'll be a veteran leader, and you know what? If my roster spot gets taken on at the end of the year by a young guy, that's okay too, because he's... He's going to be hitting free agency, and if he signs a short extension with the Orioles, maybe one or two years, he's going to be hitting free agency again in the final years of his prime. I mean, he's going to want to cash in on the time period where he is at his physical peak. So that's a, that's a great point, I think, Brendan, to point out that it takes two to tango here. And if the Orioles can't guarantee Trey Mancini everyday playing time, he might want to go somewhere where he gets everyday playing time. Yeah, and I mean, as he should. Yes. Like, there are contenders that he would start for right now. And and if the National League with this new CBA, if they get the DH, that opens up the market even more for Trey. Yeah, and I mean, look within the division. He probably starts for the Yankees and Red Sox, who are both contenders. I mean, Trey Mancini is still a good first baseman. He is still a very good hitter. He had 35 homers in 2019. He had 21 homers in 2021, a season that we are assuming going into next year, he's probably not going to get off to the same slow start to the beginning of the season for obvious reasons. So you can expect Trey Mancini to still give you maybe around 25 homers, which is still really valuable in any lineup. It is. And the question becomes how much, if you're the Orioles, 
would you have to pay him if you are extending him? What kind of deal would you give him years-wise and dollar-wise? And I looked around the league, and it's tough to find. A lot of teams don't extend first basemen because first basemen often bounce around from team to team, especially not elite first basemen. When you're not talking about the Albert Pujols' of the world, you have a lot a middle class of first basemen who kind of take one- and two-year deals as they go around from team to team because it is a non-valuable position defensively. And unless you're elite offensively, you're not really going to make a huge amount of money in today's game. So I looked around the league, and I found a player comp who signed a deal recently, and that'd be C.J. Crone, right-handed hitting first baseman. He's 31. He has a career OPS plus, which puts it on a scale with 100 being average of 114, which means he's 14% better than the average player OPS-wise. Trey Mancini is going to be 30 in spring. His career OPS is 115. So their career numbers are very similar, about the same age when they're entering a year in which they could sign with another team. And Crone just got extended by the Rockies for a two-year, $14.5 million deal. Would you sign Trey Mancini to a two-year, $14.5 million deal if you're the Orioles? I absolutely would if I'm the Orioles. Two years, $14.5 million. I don't think two years, $14.5 million gets it done for Trey Mancini's side of things. I, I think that's a good deal for the Orioles, but I would also argue that Trey Mancini is a more valuable player than somebody like C.J. Crone. I think you probably need to pay him more. And this, you know, gives away my verdict here a little bit on what I would do in this situation if I'm trying to figure out what to do with Trey Mancini. I would give him a two-year, $20 million deal. I, I think that gets it done on both ends. And it's enough to, I, I think it's enough to keep him around. And I don't think it is too much that it locks you in position-wise and a bunch of different things. So when, without getting into all of that, I, I think two years, $20 million. When you say two years, are you talking about buying out the last year of arbitration in 2022? Or are you extending that after, are you having this extension kick in after 2020? I'm extending it. So, so I'm you, saying giving 2023, seven, 2024. So you're giving him $7.1 million or roughly what he's doing arbitration and yep. then adding two years, which yep. means... You're going to be getting him for his age 30, 31, and 32 seasons. Yep. I, I mean, I think I would give him two for 20 either way, whether you're buying out the final year of arbitration or extending him after that. I, I'm fine either way there. Okay. Let's open door number two, Brendan. Yep. Trade. And I know I've already looked at the Facebook comments. It's... Uh, a lot of people who are upset at us talking about trading Trey yeah. Mancini. But oh, real quick, we knew this was now happen. that you mentioned a, a Facebook comment, Wesley on Facebook comments, uh, Mountcastle's original position was third. Why don't move him back there and then play Mancini at first? They tried the Ryan Mountcastle experiment at third base and in the corner outfield as he was coming up throughout the minor leagues. We saw Mountcastle in the outfield in his first year. That did not go very well. well He's a first baseman. He was fine in the outfield in 2020. And then in 2021, yes. he played two months in the outfield and had negative five defensive run saved. So not good. Yeah. So uh, he's a first baseman. If you recall, there was Matt Harvey's first start at Camden Yards. He made like two errors in left field. It was, yeah, they they yeah. abandoned that experiment, unfortunately. So they, they are locked into Mountcastle at first base. All right, door number two for trade him. What would the Orioles get in return? If you're trading Trey Mancini at this point, entering his age 30 season, one year under team control, what would you get in theory for Trey Mancini? This one's tough because 
personally, I don't think you would get enough in return for Trey Mancini because you'd be getting a return for the baseball player, and I think his value is more than that on the surface. So I don't know if there is a hypothetical trade that I would do for Trey Mancini if I'm the Orioles because I don't think you get much more than maybe like one top 20 prospect and a fringe top 30 guy. So I, I don't think you get a ton more than that. When you said there is a place for Trey Mancini on other teams, I agree. However, that doesn't necessarily mean teams are going to give up prospects for that player. Right. I think teams are much more willing to sign first basemen in free agency because there is an abundance of first basemen in free agency, and it's easier to buy it by those kind of players than it is to give up assets for those kind of players. And for the Orioles, you're probably not going to get, like you said, Brendan, a whole big return for a player who's only under contract for one year, is unfortunately coming off a down year, completely understandable as mentioned, but there will be concerns from outside of the organization, from other organizations, that he may not fully return to his 2019 form, his most valuable Oreo form. And that might cause teams to say it's safer to invest $10 million in a free agent for one or two years now than it is to give up assets for a player that we have to pay $7.1 million in arbitration to anyway, and he's going to be a free agent after this season anyway. Right. So I looked around the league in terms of a trade comp, and again, kind of difficult to find a perfect trade partner, but I looked at a deal that is somewhat similar. This isn't a perfect match here. The Josh Bell trade last year from Pittsburgh to Washington. Now, Bell is a power-hitting first baseman. He's a switch hitter. Trey, of course, only hits righty. Bell was entering the 2020-2021 offseason, so a year ago, with a career OPS of 116, which is just one point higher than Trey Mancini's career OPS at this time. Now, he was going into his age 28 season, whereas Mancini's going into his age 30 season, and he had two years left on his deal. So he had 2021 and 2022, whereas Mancini only has 2022. So understandably, Pittsburgh was able to capitalize on a return for him. So they got back Eddie Yeen and Will Crow, both top 10 prospects in a very, very, very thin national system. So top 10 prospects that would probably f maybe even, I don't know, maybe be in the Orioles top 30, maybe be in the 20s. They're late 20s, if anything. So to me, this deal is not perfect because I think at the time, Bell was a slightly better player. He was younger and he had more years of control. And still Pittsburgh was not able to get a whole lot back for him. So to me, that says, if the Orioles were to trade Trey Mancini, I don't think you get two prospects as good as Eddie Yeen and Will Crow. Yeah, especially because Josh Bell was a former top prospect around baseball in Pittsburgh. And like you said, he was younger. I believe he had an all-star game under his belt he at did. that point. He had more highs and lows. So he yeah. had an all-star appearance, phenomenal year in 2019, and then a very poor... Shortened 2020. But flashed a ton of potential right. over that time, which Trey Mancini has not really flashed outside of that 2019 season, where, again, probably the notion around Major League Baseball is that it would be difficult for him to repeat that production. After right. go undergoing right. chemotherapy. Again, 
completely yeah. understandably so, but it does go into the value that is attached to Trey Mancini, which again leads me back to my original point, which was that I don't think you get a lot for him, which isn't to say that he's not worth a good amount. I think he is worth more to you in-house if you're Baltimore than he is worth whatever you would get in a trade for him, which again, I don't think would be much more than maybe one top 20 prospect and and maybe somebody who's a fringe top 30 guy. Right. So is it worth it? I don't think so. Yeah. I, I don't think it is because you will get good production out of Trey Mancini for the time that he is here. And I know Michael Elias wants to stack the farm system, but how much does a mid 20s prospect really do for you at this point in a farm system that's already stacked right because a mid 20s prospect somewhere else is maybe not even in your top 30 and let's be honest as we read the facebook comments a trade of trey mancini would not be particularly popular i think you could say with the fan base now there are there is some portion of the fan base i think that would understand it i i I saw on youtube one of our commenters uh said if you love him let him go which i thought was funny uh and you can, you you know, I think the Orioles are, of course, a very rational, have a very rational fan base. They would understand the business side of it. However, it hurts to lose a fan favorite player, somebody that you've invested a lot of time and maybe bought his jersey and he's given you a lot of great moments over the years and he has shown nothing but love for Baltimore. It might have, bring some backlash yeah. if you were to trade him. Not might, it would. Yeah. I, I think it absolutely would. Right. I, I don't think you should trade Trey Mancini. I don't think the value is there in return. And I don't think whatever value you got in return would be worth the fan base reaction, honestly. Yeah. Would not be a good look. So that leaves door number three. So let's say that the Orioles are not able to come to a, an agreement on an extension. Maybe it's from the Orioles side. Maybe they say we don't want to invest that money in you long-term, knowing that we have Mountcastle. Or maybe it's on Trey's side saying, I think I can do better in free agency in a year's time. Let's say they don't want to trade him. They can go into this 2022 season with him under contract for the entirety of the 2022 season. They can pay him his roughly $7.1 million in arbitration and kick the can down the road, essentially. Now, there are positives and negatives to this. I think a positive would be you can get a better estimation of what kind of player he's going to be post-cancer post-chemotherapy, post, is he going to return to his 2019 form or has he lost a step, understandably, for the millionth time we say in this podcast, but, you know, is he going to be the 2019 Trey Mancini for the rest of his career or is he going to be closer to 2021 where he bounces back and forth between first and DH and he gives you about 20, 25 homers? That is a positive. A negative could be if you want to trade him, if you still have any hopes of trading him, you could lose a little bit of leverage because once you start the season, this, the clock starts ticking and teams are going to get less and less and fewer and fewer games out of Trey Mancini, which means the return could be less and less and less. And if you deal him by the deadline, teams are only going to get two months of Trey Mancini instead of six. I think extending Trey Mancini is an approach of maximizing potential value. I think just letting arbitration play out and letting him go in free agency and figure it out from there is the approach of minimizing potential damage, if that makes any sense. 
I think if you try to extend him, you are saying, okay, we will figure out a way to make you work in the lineup. We believe that in your early 30s career, you will still be a productive hitter, whether that's at first base or DH. We'll figure it out. We want good players in the clubhouse. We want Trey Mancini as our, you know, pretty much captain of the team going forward. We want him to be here for the time when the Orioles are actually turning this thing around, start winning. All of that argument is to say, we think he can give us value. So by extending him, we are trying to maximize that. Whereas I think if you are just letting him play out arbitration, you're not taking that risk one way or another because the risk with extending him, again, is you have a logjam at positions. Maybe he doesn't give you the same position, same value, excuse me, that he even gave you in 2021, and now you're just stuck with that contract. And you don't have to take that risk if you don't extend him at this point and just let him play through arbitration. But then again, you're also risking him having a good season. Now you owe him more money if you try to extend him. Or maybe he walks in free agency to a deal that you should have done. Right. So I think it is a less risky decision to just let him play through arbitration because he will have a role on this 2022 team. The logjam that we've talked about with all these prospects coming up is not there yet. So Trey Mancini has a clear defined role in 2022. He's going to be probably the primary DH and he will split time with Ryan Mountcastle a decent amount at first. But is that all you want from Trey Mancini going forward? I would argue not. I would argue he still has value over the next few years, but you are minimizing that risk. If we look back at decisions that Mike Elias has made, one thing that we have learned is he likes to take his time with decisions if he has the time. I look back at the... Jose Iglesias' decision that he took down to the wire before he picked up his $3.5 million option for the 2021 season and then ended up trading him. He waited until the last minute because there's no reason to rush yourself into a decision and force yourself into a mistake. To me, I think the Orioles will open door number three and walk through it. I think they, they will pay him what he's due in arbitration, and they will wait and see. They will wait and see whether Trey Mancini looks more like 2019 Trey Mancini or whether he looks more like 2021 Trey Mancini. They will wait and see which prospects come up and look good and can lock down spots. And they will wait and see if that first base spot becomes a true logjam going forward. You never know if a Tyler Nevin comes up, lights the world on fire, and all of a sudden you don't have room for Trey Mancini. You don't have room for another first baseman DH. I think the, it makes sense for the Orioles to wait. And while you can hamper yourself, like you said, Brendan, if y- you could end up having to pay him more money, if you go through this whole season, he has a great season, you don't have anybody banging down the door for f- uh, a backup first baseman DH type, you want to bring him back, and you say, man, we could have gotten him cheaper in the spring if we just extended him, but now we have to pay him more. I get that. To me, that's worth the risk, though. And Trey has already shown in everything he's done and said that he loves Baltimore. He loves the fan base. He loves being here. And to me, the door will not be closed. If you don't extend him now, I don't see Trey Mancini closing the door on the Orioles and putting his putting his phone on do not disturb when Mike Elias calls. I think that he's going to be open to re-signing with the Orioles in a year's time, regardless of the kind of season that he'll have in 2022, because 
Orioles fans have been great to him. It's been a great relationship. So I, I don't think the Orioles are missing out by not extending him. And they can always try to swoop in in a year's time if he's a free agent and he's getting fielding calls from other teams and the Orioles say, we just, we need that veteran presence. We don't, we think we can give him playing time. They can swoop in and, and try to re-sign him. So I don't think it's the end of the world if he goes into his walk year, you don't trade him, you don't extend him, and you see what happens. Yeah, uh, that's where my verdict lies with Trey Mancini. I think this is also the more likely scenario, which is that they just let him play through arbitration. If it were me, in an ideal scenario here, I think you start the 2022 season without an extension in place. I think you let him play on his arbitration contract. I would try to sign him to an extension at some point, maybe give him half a season. See what kind of production he gives you for the first half of 2022. If it's a little bit better than 2021, closer to the 2019 season, that's when I say, okay, you come in, give him, like I said before, I would say a two-year, $20 million extension for 2023 and 2024. I think you sign him partway through the season so that you don't have to worry about him going somewhere else in free agency, but it still gives you an opportunity to evaluate a little bit what he is able to do this year. That that's what I would do in this scenario because I don't think you can get enough through trade, and I don't. I, as much as Trey Mancini loves Baltimore, I don't know if he is going to be as receptive to re-signing with Baltimore if he hits the open market in free agency, especially when you look at the fact that there could be if he has a good 2022 season, which we are anticipating, there could be contending teams that want Trey Mancini to come in and be, if not an everyday player, close to an everyday player. Right. And I think it would be very hard for Trey Mancini, again, as much as he loves Baltimore, to look at the option of going to a contending team after the losing seasons he's experienced with the Orioles. I think it would be difficult to pass up for him if he is getting comparable money. Because if he hits free agency, the Orioles might have to overpay him. Right. But... Similarly, if they make an offer midway through the season when he's having an all-star 2022 season, he might look at that and say, I'm going to wait three months and get a whole big load of cash from a this contender. Is this is true. As, as is his right. As is, you know, he as he should. As yeah. he should. Absolutely. So I think that it makes, uh, that that is a potential route, but takes two to tango. He might right. not want to sign an extension if he's having a great year. Yeah. Uh, in terms of extensions, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up some old wounds and a certain other first baseman who signed an extension that ended up looking very poor in hindsight, Chris Davis. Because years ago, fans were clamoring to extend, to re-sign Chris Davis when he was coming off, he was a, a couple years removed from an, a year in which he finished in the top three in MVP voting. And while it didn't make a whole lot of sense for the team to give him the amount of money, the $161 million seven-year deal that they did, I'll be honest and say a lot of fans were happy with it. And there, were, there was a portion of the fan base that said, this, that's too much money, we shouldn't have given him that, that contract, that's too many years for a guy who's entering his age 30 season, even though he hit 53 homers in 2013. But there were fans that were excited to have him back. I don't think Trey Mancini's getting a seven-year, $161 million deal from anyone. But 
Chris Davis still remains a cautionary tale for signing a first baseman, power-hitting first baseman, uh, to a long-term deal because it can still look bad. And I, I know a lot of people at that time were saying, what's the worst he's going to be? A 25-homer-a-year guy, a 30-homer-a-year guy, good clubhouse presence, good man for the city of Baltimore. He loves Baltimore. Baltimore loves him. The downside is not that low, and we saw how low it could could get. I don't think Trey Mancini's going to reach the lows that Chris Davis had, but you never know. And it's still a cautionary tale to not box yourself into a corner and not make a decision that you don't have to. Yeah, I, I get it, but... A, Trey Mancini has never been the peak. He has never seen the peak that Chris Davis had, which means that he is not going to get a seven-year, $161 million deal. And if Chris Davis is playing as poorly as he did, excuse me, if Trey Mancini is playing as poorly as Chris Davis was, the reason that everybody was talking about Chris Davis 24-7 was not because he was as as poorly as he was playing, it was because he was making $161 million. While also While playing. also playing as poorly as he was playing. So Trey Mancini could play that badly, but you're probably not paying him more than 10 or $15 million a year. Right. So yeah, maybe you have to eat a year of really, really poor production in that worst case scenario but it's not $161 million. Exactly, exactly. It's not a perfect comparison. My point is simply that oftentimes, you know, the the basement, the floor, can oftentimes be lower than you think. It can. And extending a guy when you don't need to extend him, giving him an extra year, you say, all right, what's the harm, you know? It's $10 million for a third year. It can look bad. It can look really bad, and it can end really poorly. It can, but it won't look that bad. No, but Chris Davis is not the only underwater contract that the Orioles have had to get themselves out from under that has hampered their ability to spend. I mean, Alex Cobb is an underwater contract that they still had to pay during seasons in which they were non-competitive. Yeah. So you, you have to be careful not to sign deals that look bad in the short term, especially when... The, the Chris Davis contract also looked bad because it hampered the Orioles' ability to re-sign Nelson Cruz and re-sign Nick Markakis. And that was the issue there. It, wasn't ne- it was not necessarily just his poor production, but it was you could have had these other guys, but because you chose to sign him, you can't get those other guys. So my point is, if you, if you dedicate money to a player that you're not positive will be productive or will be a good player for you, will fit your timeline, will fit what you need, that money could be better allocated on what if the Orioles need a third baseman? What if they need a a corner outfielder, a top pitcher in two years, and they're this close to making a wild card spot, but because they're spending money on a first baseman that they don't need to spend money on, that could hamper their ability to get a piece that they actually need in a couple years. Yeah, I think that's, uh, with the Chris Davis comparison, I think that's what to take out of it is if the Orioles are competing for a playoff spot in 2024, do you want to be paying $15 million to Ryan Mountcastle's backup when you could get a starting pitcher or a reliever or something like to that effect, which I get, but again, it's not the huge contract that is hampering you to the point where you can't sign anybody. Right. 
No, it's not going to be. He's not going to get $25 million a year. And the Orioles also have a long way to go contract-wise before a $10 million deal really makes a difference. Yes, but Wander Franco just played in his rookie year, and he got a huge extension that bought out his years of pre-arbitration and arbitration eligibility. What if Adley Rutschman plays one year and the Orioles say, here's a a 10-year deal? We're going to buy out your years of arbitration, your pre-arbitration years, so we're going to overpay you for the first few years, but we're going to underpay you for the final... Yeah, things things could change quickly. Yeah, I mean, the Orioles have to be strategic in this. My point is, just because they have money now, just because they have a low payroll now, doesn't mean that they're going to be flush with cash in two years or three years. This is true. Things change. All right, Brendan. That just about does it for our podcast today. Any final thoughts? Well, what was what was your verdict? I know my oh. verdict was extend him for two years, 2023-2024. Mine is is what I think the Orioles will do, which is door number three, pay him $7.1 million roughly in arbitration, and wait and see. Wait and see. Okay. Not the most exciting option, but, but that's what I got for yeah. right now. All right, Brendan. Well, uh, we are going to, in a couple weeks be we might as well start talking about it now because we're already planning our prep here yeah the all earl weaver draft now a year ago around this time we did the all camden yards draft during which we had uh three teams of the best players ever to come through camden yards in an orioles uniform not in other uniforms and we split them up on three teams doing a snake draft this year we're going to take 1968 to 1986 the earl weaver era we're going to be drafting the best players who have ever played under Earl Weaver. Yeah, we've got a starter from every position, four starting pitchers, two relievers. It's a snake draft. We're bringing in producer Tim Leonard, mm-hmm. social media the, the extraordinaire. Yeah, because it's not as much fun with two teams. Right. Got to have three teams. We've been planning our prep for quite a while. We still got a couple weeks to go. I'm excited, Brendan. Yeah. Hopefully I don't botch my drafting as, as much as I botched last. You know, the last draft I felt really good about, I had the team with the highest war. I was ready to go, and then I came in last on the social media voting. Yes, you did. I did not have a social media savvy team. Chris Hoyles does not really move Doesn't the get chains. the young people going, no, unfortunately. I, my team was not social media friendly, which shouldn't be as much of an issue considering we're drafting players from 1968 to 1986. Yeah. There aren't too many fan favorites on social media from the Earl Weaver era. There are some. Well, Jim Palmer. Jim Palmer, Brooks Robinson. Yeah, there's a few. There's a few. The top of the draft is loaded, I think you can say. Uh, And we are going to determine what the order is of the draft picks on our next podcast. We're going to be randomizing it so that we determine one, two, three. I will be rigging it. Okay, you're going to freeze the envelope again? Yeah. Okay. Uh, So we can't wait to do that. We will probably have a podcast between now and then, however. So be sure to tune in on all of our social channels, Facebook, YouTube, anywhere you get your podcasts. You can get the Mass and All Access podcast. Thanks for everybody for commenting along during our show today uh, as you were going live. And, of course, after the fact, let us know what you think of the show. Give us us a like on YouTube. Give us a, a share, download, all that good stuff. All that good stuff. Five stars. Give it a like. Yeah. At, I don't know. At Brandon Morty is his Twitter handle. I am at Paul Mancano. Thanks to Bobby Blanco for producing today's episode, and we will be back. We'll catch you next time.